Today is Wednesday, March the 15th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. FBI Director Christopher Wray told the Senate Intelligence Committee that the Chinese Communist Party, that's the CCP, has the ability to control millions of TikTok users' devices. Ray responded yes when asked by Senator Marco Rubio if the Chinese government could use the popular video sharing app to control the data of millions of users. If TikTok parent company ByteDance US was willing to cooperate or forced to cooperate. He also said the software on millions of TikTok users' devices could be controlled by the Chinese government. Could they use it to drive narratives, like to divide Americans against each other? Rubio asked, suggesting a possible scenario of TikTok showing Americans videos promoting Chinese ownership of Taiwan and against U.S. involvement. It could potentially happen, according to Ray, who added, We're not sure that we would see many of the outward signs of it happening, if it was happening. Some things that's very sacred in our country, the difference between the private sector and the public sector, that's a line that is non-existent in the way the CCP operates. In December, the FBI director warned the Chinese government controls the app's recommendation algorithm, which allows it to conduct operations that manipulate content or influence users and it maintains the ability to collect user data. On Capitol Hill, there have been calls on both sides of the aisle to restrict or ban TikTok, and the House Foreign Affairs Committee voted to give President the power to ban the app in what would be the most sweeping U.S. restriction on any social media app. The White House set a 30-day deadline for government agencies to ensure TikTok is not installed on any federally issued devices or systems. Governments worldwide are increasingly banning TikTok from state-owned devices, and more than 30 states, Canada, and the European Union have also banned the platform. Critics say TikTok could put user data at risk because Chinese law requires China's companies share information with the government. TikTok says it operates independently and protects U.S. data through a partnership with Oracle. According to the Washington Post, the Chinese government controls a 1% stake in one of ByteDance domestic subsidiaries and holds one of three seats on the subsidiary's board. If you're using TikTok, I suggest you stop using it. China's effort to influence technical standards. Carnegie Endowment Worries International Telecommunications Union, the ITU, is susceptible to manipulation. China's attempts to influence technical standards groups have mostly been uncoordinated, unsophisticated, and unsuccessful. 
but the United States needs to keep watch on Beijing's activities, especially at the International Telecommunications Union. That's the view of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which published an article that opens with this observation. Over the past four years, Washington's foreign policy establishment has stumbled on a new arena for competition with China, international technical standards. The current administration has articulated a policy that U.S. companies must fully participate and lead in standards development and has relaxed some export restrictions to make sure that can happen. The Carnegie Endowment Report thinks that the aim of ensuring a strong U.S. presence in standards bodies is worthy, but fundamentally misunderstands what international technical standards do and how standards development organizations operate. One reason for that assessment is that while China is increasingly active in standards development organizations, its representatives aren't very effective. The Chinese participants are very well resourced and produce good submissions, and in others, they produce weak proposals that are quickly dismissed by the group. But looking across a wide range of industries, they do not appear to regularly act in highly strategic, coordinated ways to give Chinese companies or standards proposals unfair advantages. Even if China did organize concerted action in an attempt to have a poor standard sign-off, the authors think standards development organizations would push back. Forging consensus among technical experts at standards development organizations require extensive research, rigorous debate, and frequent compromise. For important standards with widespread participation, a single company or country is not able to bulldoze their peers and force through harmful standards. But the few examples of China trying to win support for a poor standard tend to occur in standards development organizations where membership is government-based, such as the International Telecommunications Union. In 2022, China tried to use the International Telecommunications Union to endorse new IP, a version of Internet Protocol that added requirements, including allowing central control of networks. The International Telecommunications Union is not the body that developed IP standards. That's the job of the Internet Engineering Task Force. China and Russia both supported a candidate for this International Telecommunications Union Secretary General who backed new IP. The candidate was defeated, but they did manage to win over 20% of the vote. Carnegie's authors point out that if a poor standard makes it through a standards development organization, they will sometimes ratify another specifically so that the market can decide which to implement. Another defense against bad standards is ignoring them. While standards development organizations can defend themselves, fatigue may be setting in. Chinese participants are said to make dozens of low-quality proposals in International Telecommunications Union subcommittees, often simply because they can collect government subsidies for each international standard proposed or set. Those subsidized proposals consume standards development organizations' resources and weakening their ability to do more productive work. As a result, 
Many commercial actors have stopped participating in or adhering to international telecommunications union standards. Carnegie's fellows write, firms that lack of trust in the international telecommunications union is damaging the general reputation of international standards development. Given the weaknesses of the International Telecommunications Union, China can push its own domestic standards through the body and then require that all companies in its domestic market use the international standard, disadvantaging foreign companies. The authors advocate, check, check, advocate, increased U.S. engagement at standards development organizations with measures such as subsidies for U.S. nationals who attend meetings tax breaks for R&D that contributes to standards, and faster visa processing for visitors so the United States can hold more standards development organizations meeting. The article urges standards development organizations that are particularly susceptible to manipulative behavior. They need heightened attention. The FBI just admitted it bought U.S. location data. Rather than obtaining a warrant, the Bureau purchased sensitive data, a controversial practice that privacy advocates says is deeply problematic. The U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation has acknowledged for the first time that it purchased U.S. location data rather than obtaining a warrant. While the practice of buying people's location data has grown increasingly common since the U.S. Supreme Court reigned in the government's ability to warrantless track Americans' phone nearly five years ago, the FBI had not previously revealed ever making such purchases. The disclosure came during a U.S. Senate hearing on global threats attended by five of the nation's intelligence chiefs. Senator Ron Wyden, an Oregon Democrat, put the question of the Bureau's use of commercial data to its director, Christopher Wray. Does the FBI purchase U.S. phone geolocation information? Wray said his agency was not currently doing so, but he acknowledged that it had in the past. He also limited his response to data companies gathered specifically for advertising purposes. To my knowledge, we do not currently purchase commercial database information that includes location data derived from internet advertising, Ray said. I understand that we previously, as in the past, purchased some such information for a specific national security pilot project, but that's not been active for some time. He added that the Bureau now relies on a court-authorized process to obtain location data from companies. It's not immediately clear whether Ray was referring to a warrant that is an order signed by a judge who is reasonably convinced that a crime has occurred or another legal device, nor did Ray indicate what motivated the FBI to end the practice. In his landmark Carpenter v. U.S. decision, the Supreme Court held that government agencies accessing historical location data without a warrant were violating the Fourth Amendment's guaranteed against unreasonable searches. But the ruling was narrowly construed. Privacy advocates say the decision left open the glaring loophole that allows the government to simply purchase whatever it cannot otherwise legally obtain. U.S. Customs and Border Protection and the Defense Intelligence Agency among the list of federal agencies known to have taken advantage of this loophole. 
The Department of Homeland Security, for one, is reported to have purchased the geolocations of millions of Americans from private marketing firms. In that instance, the data was derived from a range of deceivingly benign sources such as mobile games and weather apps. Beyond the federal government, state and local authorities have known to acquire software that feeds off cell phone tracking data. Asked during Senate hearings whether the FBI would pick up the practice of purchasing location data again, Ray replied, We have no plans to change that at the current time. A policy attorney at Demand Progress, a nonprofit focused on national security and privacy reform, says the FBI needs to be more forthcoming about the purchases, calling Ray's admission horrifying in its implication. The public needs to know who gave the go-ahead for this purchase, why, and what other agencies have done or are trying to do the same. He says that adding Congress should also move to ban the practice entirely. U.S. lawmakers have long failed in their attempts to pass a comprehensive privacy law, and most of the bills put forth have purposely avoided the government's own acquisition of U.S. residents' personal data. The American Data Privacy and Protection Act, introduced last year, for instance, contains exemptions for all law enforcement agencies and any company collecting, processing, or transferring data on their behalf. Several bills authored by Wyden and other lawmakers have attempted to tackle the issue head-on. The Geolocation, Privacy, and Surveillance Act, for example, has been reintroduced in Congress numerous times since 2011, but has failed to receive a vote. Last month, Demand Progress joined a coalition of privacy groups in urging the head of the U.S. Financial Protection Bureau to use the Fair Credit Report Act, the nation's first major privacy law against data brokers, aggregating Americans' information without their consent. Attorneys who sign onto the campaign from organizations such as the National Consumer Law Center and Just Futures Law said the privacy violations inherent to the data broker industry disproportionately impact society's most vulnerable, interfering with their ability to obtain jobs, housing, and government benefits. While the 21st century privacy problems may have been beyond the authors 50 years ago, modern injustices tied to the sale of personal data may, they argue, still fall under its purview. The FBI warns of voice cloning technology. The FBI warns of voice cloning technology being used in scam calls. To create a convincing clip, scammers only need a sample of your voice. This is saying that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but you can certainly make an old scam new again with a few technology tricks. The FBI is warning about a version of the grandparent scam that involves advanced voice cloning technology. A typical grandparent's Scam, according to the AARP, will begin by the caller telling the victim that there has been an accident and that they're in jail, the hospital, or stuck in a foreign country and are in need of help. The caller adds enough details about how and where the emergency happened to make the story seem plausible. The distraught caller will make the person think, does sort of sound like my grandson or granddaughter? Oftentimes, a caller will tell the victim that another person, usually a lawyer, doctor, or police officer, will explain everything. 
Now those claims seem even more convincing and are expanding beyond the typical elder victims with scammers using clone voice clips acting as a close friend or family member. The only thing you're going to hear is something as fast as, Dad, I need help. It's not going to be a full conversation. All you need is a few seconds for somebody to say, Dad, I'm in trouble. I need help. I've been kidnapped. Super simple. And then the criminal gets on the phone and does what he does. The scam caller will ask the victim to send a wire money immediately. How to protect yourself from voice scam calls. Your digital footprint and what you post on social media can make you an easy target. To create a convincing clip, scammers only need a sample of your voice from an Instagram story or Facebook video. They're getting a little bit more creative and they're doing a little bit of research. They're going to social media platforms such as Instagram and Facebook and they start getting internal information. Intimate information of families that they could use against them when they do make those extortion videos. It is recommended that you adjust your privacy settings on those social media sites and limiting your followings to close friends. What to do if you get a call? The FBI recommends immediately checking in with your friend or family member on a second phone. One thing not to do is turn on your video because scammers would have you virtually kidnapped, leaving you unable to hang up or use another phone. Authorities say you should immediately report the call. Most don't, according to the FBI, making it difficult for the agency to track how prevalent the scams are. In recent years, the Federal Trade Commission started holding workshops about voice cloning technology. They say the best way to protect yourself is similar to steps to avoid the so-called grandparent scam. Before voice cloning technology becomes so sophisticated not even the trained ear can pick up the differences. They're very, very close to picking up on the emotion, the inflections in a voice. Remote workers and freelancers are cutting back on working from home. Why? Because it's too expensive. Looking back, one of the most exciting prospects about working from home is the ability to live in an environment suited to your comfort, having the heating on to the exact temperature you like, your favorite television show or music droning on in the background, and enjoying a midday shower after you've done some exercise. But fast forward to today, many of these little luxuries are too costly for the average remote worker. Not only that, but even the basics like heating is becoming unaffordable as the cost of living spirals. Remote workers and freelancers are so worried about the rising costs related to working from home that they're actually searching for alternative work locations to save money. According to a study of 1,000 remote workers by SkyConnect, 87% are concerned about the impact working from home is having on their energy bills. This was heightened last month when much of Europe and the United States experienced brutal blizzards and dangerously cold weather with 78% of respondents describing working through such conditions as uncomfortable. Left with the option to work uncomfortably in a cold home or spending more than they can afford on heating, nearly half of those surveyed said that they felt forced to find an alternate working location. As such, they resorted to working in the likes of a local cafe, pub, or library at least once a week. 
The main reason for not working from home was to save money on heating their homes, according to the survey, followed by saving money on energy bills. The convenience of a local public space also meant that workers could avoid spending money on commuting or forking out for pricey co-working subscriptions like WeWork. Both of these costs concern around a third of respondents. The only downside? Unreliable connectivity. For remote workers, obviously, the ability to effectively do their job remotely is important. It's why 70% of respondents said they don't work outside of their home office more often. The cost of living crisis is a huge concern for consumers and small businesses alike. But for those spending the most time at home, increasing energy bills are understandably putting a strain on personal finances. While it's great to see these workers supporting their local small businesses during an increasingly challenging time for hospitality, perhaps the local businesses can make it more of a working environment that will entice regular customers to keep coming back. Fake parking ticket scam. Scammers are using QR codes to trick people into paying for non-existent violations. Scammers are taking advantage of using fake tickets that trick you into making payments for violations you weren't actually cited for. According to the Better Business Bureau, the scams involve tickets printed with QR codes that take you not to the legit payment site for your municipality, but to a dummy site that only approximates the real thing. When victims pay the citations, they're not just giving up their money, but their personal information, which puts them at further risk. Scammers stake out a busy street, waiting for a potential victim to park nearby, maybe someone who double parks while running into a store, for example. They will use a handheld device to print out an entirely official-looking parking ticket and stick it onto your windshield. The fake ticket includes a QR code that purports to offer you a convenient way to pay the violation but actually direct you to a payment website that, if used, will deliver your money and personal information directly to the scammer. In the absence of a QR code, the ticket might direct you to a payment site that will accept peer-to-peer payments. Other victims have reported receiving emails notifying them of pending parking tickets with a reminder to pay lest they face stiffer fines or other consequences. But clicking on the payment link could potentially cause you to download malware, warns the Better Business Bureau. If you're confident you committed no infraction in your parking, but still receive a citation, that should be a red flag. You can always dispute any parking violation, and the citation should list exactly what law or rule you broke to warrant being written a ticket. If the violation listed doesn't make sense, you might have a ticket in your hands. Most parking citations will take you to an official city website to process your payment. If the citation asks you to pay with a peer-to-peer app like Venmo, Zelle, PayPal, or something similar, it's a scam. Because there is no jurisdiction on private parking lots, if you receive a citation in one of them, in a retail store's parking lot or stadium parking, for example, that's also a warning sign. Most private parking lots will tow you or boot your wheel instead. While some private lots can issue a citation, it's rare. 
So if you're coming back from a game or from shopping and see a ticket on your windshield, be suspicious. Regardless of why you got the ticket, you should always double-check the organization citing you and contact them directly through their official website, not by calling the number listed on the ticket or by following a QR code. Ask if the ticket in your hands is legit, and if it's not, report it. Best practices to avoid ticket scams that the Better Business Bureau recommends that you do the following. Research available parking and local parking requirements. Tourists and vehicles with out-of-state licenses are usually targeted because they are assumed to not know about the local parking laws. Examine the citation carefully. Google the city official parking ticket website and compare it to what's on the ticket. Are the logos the same? Are the phone numbers and the URL the same? Government sites should end in a .gov, and payment sites should always start with HTTPS, which indicates the site is secure. Check the recipient if you're given the option to pay with a check. Some tickets will give you the option to pay with a check. This can be a good litmus test to see if the ticket is fake. Checks should generally be made to a specific government organization, not a string of initials or a person's name. Always pay with a credit card. Paying with a credit card gives you the assurance that if a payment is fraudulent, the bank will give you your money back. Payments made with a peer-to-peer app, debit, cash, or check are almost always impossible to recover. What to do if you think you've been a victim of a fake parking ticket? The best thing to do, other than not paying it, obviously, is to report it to the Better Business Bureau. While you might not necessarily get your money back if you did already submit a payment, your report can help others learn about common scam tactics and avoid them in the future. The IRS has big warning on tax filings. The Internal Revenue Service is urging people to avoid scams currently making the rounds on social media. One of the scheme, according to the IRS, encourages people to use tax software to manually fill out their W-2 form and provide false income information. This scheme suggests people make up a large salary and withholdings from a phony employer in an effort to get a large refund, sometimes as much as five figures. The IRS is saying that we are seeing signs that this scam is increasing, and we worry that innocent taxpayers could be at risk of being tempted into falling into a trap that puts them at risk of financial and criminal penalties, said Acting IRS Commissioner Doug O'Donnell. The IRS and Security Summit partners remind people there is no secret way to get free money or big refund. People should not make up income and try to submit a fraudulent tax return in hopes of getting a huge return. Another scam is people using Form 7202, credits for sick leave and family leave for certain self-employed individuals to claim a credit based on income earned as an employee and not as a self-employed individual. These credits were available for self-employed individuals for 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic. They are not available for 2022 tax returns. A variation of this scheme involves people making up fictional employees employed in their household and using Schedule H, Form 1040. Household employment taxes 
to try claiming a refund based on forced sick and family wages they never paid. The form is designed to report household employment taxes if a taxpayer hired someone to do household work and those wages were subject to Social Security or Medicare taxes, or if the employer withheld federal income tax from those wages. The IRS is working with states and tax industry companies to be on the lookout for this scheme and others. In addition, the IRS is working with payroll companies and large employers, as well as the Social Security Administration, to verify W-2 information. People who are caught violating the law face a wide range of penalties, including a frivolous return penalty of $5,000 and run the risk of criminal prosecution. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where I spend just a few minutes talking about the business, the workplace, IT there, and how it impacts us, how it relates to us. And yes, we go all over the place with this particular topic, but I want you to think about this age-old saying, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. And when we talk about data, when we talk about all of the information on our computers, it is important that we don't put all of our data into one place, that one single hard drive. So businesses have gone through and they've done a number of different efforts to make sure that they don't lose too much data or any data. If they can at all avoid it, if they can at all help it, yes, we do have issues like ransomware. And ransomware, it gets better and better and better. And it attacks it attacks not only the local drives, but then the network drives. And then it expands on out beyond that. So they, they put it into a place where they start looking for data backups. And they start putting the ransomware on the data backups, securing all of the data down that they can to hold the everything ransom. Relying on a single backup will leave your data, whether it's the company, your personal data, whatever it is, vulnerable in case of failure. And that failure can be a failure to protect against viruses and ransomware and all of that. It can be physical hard drive failure. It can be, oops, I deleted the wrong thing to protect your data. Whether we're talking business or personal, multiple backups are essential. Now, I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about businesses, but I want you to think about how this all interrelates to both sides of this. So, multiple data backups are crucial. They protect against data loss. If, if, if the backup fails, you lose all of your data. If you have one backup, that's a problem. If you have multiple backups, okay, one backup can fail. Two backups can fail. Your original can fail. But if you've got a third backup, you're covered. Then there's something called business continuity. And this is a business side thing. But we also need to think about our own personal life con- continuity. Imagine you've got a system crash. Your primary backup fails. And you can't access your data. What happens? You're, if in the business, the business operations come to a halt. 
in the home, your email comes to a halt. All of the different things you rely on start to crash. You lose all of all of your taxes for the last 10 years. Some would argue that's not a big deal, but you know, others would say, yeah, I don't want an IRS audit. So you need to be able to quickly restore whatever data it is that is lost. You need to restore your systems and get back to where you were before all of that went south. Now, in the business world, there are compliance requirements. There's something called Sarbanes-Oxley, which requires all businesses to retain financial data for a specific period of time. The way we do that in the business world is we have multiple backups just so we can meet those requirements. In our personal lives, we go back to that IRS thing, but don't you want to have all of the backups of the data in regards to the purchase of your home or your car or your your bank accounts, your, uh, your, your 401k, your, all of these different things? You need to have access to it. Of course, we talk about human error. I will tell you, I, 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 have, I have been there on the scene when we had a network guy make a really stupid mistake. And he almost, he, well, he killed all of the data on a very key computer. He, uh, you know, he, he wound up paying the price for it. We all did because we were scrambling to get that data back. So we had to restore that data. And having multiple backups reduces the risk of losing data due to something like this. And as I mentioned, the ransomware attacks. So let's let's really think about this. How many backups do you need? Now, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to this. There's, there's all kinds of different directions we can go in. How many do I believe that I need? Well, I carry the original data. I have a backup drive in the system that sits right there, and it's constant. I do regular updates there. I have two external drives, which I rotate through. And then I have a network drive. This is all within my home. I have one more external drive offsite. And when I say offsite, it's a long way away just to protect my data. Now, I also test these backups on a regular basis to make sure they're working correctly. And then I've covered all of the important information that I need to retain in case everything goes bad. The last thing you want to have happen is for you to go to your backup and you find out, oh, I, 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 that didn't work. I've had that happen to me personally before. Look, your best bet, at least three copies of your data, one offsite, two locally. I've got a few more. Weigh it out. I will tell you the cost to recover data. Should you encounter a failure, one of these problems can be expensive, far more expensive than these cheap external hard drives. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. A shocking high number of Americans have cut the cord as the death of cable TV draws near. In the early 2010s, cord cutters were often seen as a fringe minority out there. Now, over half of Americans no longer pay 
for cable TV or other traditional pay TV services. According to a report from the Insider Intelligence, 47.7 million American households are now cord cutters. They also report by the end of 2023, 54.4% of all Americans will no longer pay for traditional cable TV service. Streaming services have evolved to offer many advantages over cable and satellite packages. They're more affordable, despite having raised prices, they provide more flexibility for stopping and starting service, and they increasingly carry programming that used to exist only on legacy systems. Also, as they mature, streaming services are building libraries of must-see digital-only content. This gives viewers more and more incentives to cut the cord and sign on with digital video providers. The availability of key content, specifically live sports, on streaming platforms will drive cord cutting in the coming years. Thursday Night Football moved from Fox to Amazon Prime Video in 2022. NFL Sunday Ticket will switch from DirecTV to YouTube when the new season starts this fall. As more marquee programming migrates online, it is expected more households to cut the cord in favor of cheaper digital alternatives. According to the report, YouTube, Netflix, and Amazon Prime are still the top three most popular streaming services. Growing fast is a group of newcomers like Disney+, Peacock, and Paramount. Increasing the growing amount of content available online versus cable TV is drawing even reluctant streamers into the world of cord cutting. Cheap Ways to Watch TV A hot trend for viewers fed up with costly cable and streaming subscriptions. Tubi, that's T-U-B-I, is a service that offers free streaming TV. In the ultra-confusing world of media acronyms, Tubi has been known as an ad-supported video on-demand or AVOD service. A newer acronym is FAST, which stands for free ad-supported streaming TV. True to the acronym, FAST is rapidly building buzz as one of the hottest TV trends of the year. What's the difference? As Variety explains, the FAST format is essentially no different from watching a TV network. Unlike the other free streaming format, AVOD, which sees viewers select a title on demand and start at the beginning. FAST is a linear stream. This means that a FAST channel is selected via an electronic programming grid with a title on a channel joined in progress by the viewer. Such internet-delivered services may offer channels focused on specific programs, an or-dateline channel, for example, which is essentially an ongoing marathon of episodes that allows viewers to dip into and watch whatever is on at the moment, or local and national news channels. Choices also often include TV series and movies, both old and more recent. These are examples of the growing popularity of what you might call simply cheap TV. Whatever you call them, the choices for free or low-cost ways to watch are multiplying for reasons that include viewers who are fed up with soaring cable bills. Irked by increasing prices for streaming services, 
and, in general, wondering about where to spend limited entertainment dollars in a time of economic uncertainty. While Tubi made a splash with its Super Bowl ads, other free ad-supported streaming TV services are competing for eyeballs. Among the highest-profile contenders are Amazon's Freevee, formerly known as IMDb TV, Pluto TV, Zumoplay, and the Roku channel. Unlike subscriptions to Netflix, Hulu, Apple TV+, Paramount+, HBO Max, and others, these services are free. You hear that? Free. But you have to sit through ad breaks. This ritual may sound familiar to anyone who watches broadcast TV, like the standard channels ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC, where the program is broken up by commercials. In fact, though, fast services come via the internet. Basically, the general interest-free, ad-supported streaming services offer a cable TV sort of hodgepodge of vintage shows, old movies, more recent shows, and more recent movies, along with some original programs. Tubi, for example, is a division of Fox Entertainment, so it unsurprisingly features many shows that also air on the Fox Broadcast Network. You can also choose from specific channels ranging from an ABC News channel to a Court TV channel. Several free ad-supported streaming TV services offer TV shows and movies which may include oldies. Zumoplay, owned by Comcast, offers what is claimed are more than 290 different channels and tens of thousands of movie and TV titles to choose from including channels for music, news, stand-up comedy, and more. The offerings are what seems like a fairly random collection of obscure stuff, contemporary classics, and more. Pluto TV, another of the more established free ad-supported streaming TV services, is owned by Paramount. Considering the company owns a wide variety of brands, including CBS, Showtime, Paramount+, MTV, and more, Pluto TV features an impressive number of options. Choices include a stories by AMC Channel with Breaking Bad episodes, Star Trek channels, a 60-minute channels, tons of true crime shows, and movies including animated features from Oregon's Laker Studio, along with vintage series such as Gunsmoke, Stanford and Son, Matlock, the Twilight Zone, Barry Mason, Laverne and Shirley, and the Brady Bunch. Even if much of what's out there are these services consists of oddball, barely remembered blends of classics, more true crime series than anyone could conceivably watch, and movies and shows you might already stumble across on cable channels, there are signs that free ad-supported stream TV is gaining momentum. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you were talking to, you were talking about the line of succession. And I don't think I don't think you were talking about the Royals. I don't think you were talking about uh, <laughs> Prince Harry and his No, his I'm, I'm, I'm thinking Silicon. Yeah, okay. All right. I mean I look 
I, I work very hard not to live in the past on this show. Yes. We, we, we get some references that are older than I like them to be, but yeah. We all grew up, you know, we had dads with computers, all of that. So, so that, I mean, that, and that's really Steve's realm. That's, that's where we, we frequently go to him for that. But yeah. And, and there was an era, and you know it well, when gaming, mm-hmm. and for that matter, video editing, mm-hmm. really required getting extra horsepower into the box and extra storage and all of that kind of thing, and kind of forced us away from notebooks, which were already trending, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and into the system unit, that computer case that would live. The desktop, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Exactly right. Now, if you think about what went into those all the wonderful graphics cards, all of the drives, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the peripherals, the big screens, uh, the, the the keyboards with extra functionality, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Is all of it invalid now? Is all of it obsolete? Go back any further, and yes, it is. I betting no matter how many printers you have with Centronics ports, you're not going to plug one into anything. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, I I no longer have any printers with Centronic Sports. Right, but, and but that's that's only for that's only for about three years now. For, uh, yeah. five years actually. And USB, yeah. if it's older than if, if even USB two is obsolete in a lot of people's minds, and rightfully sure. yeah. so. Yeah, so, yeah. So you know, there, there's this natural migration, progression, evolution within computers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on my mind is. Are we abandoning value? And I don't mean to us, and I don't mean we should be hoarding. Mm-hmm. But when we're done with those computers for ourselves, when we've moved on, mm-hmm. is there some value to the whole thing or the pieces and parts? Is there somebody who might be less fortunate who would enjoy having the ability to use a computer be- but haven't been able to afford one, even a basic one. Mm-hmm. Are there schools where they, they could find good purpose for them? Are there charities? Is there a, a goodwill store kind of venue for these things? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that that's organized. In fact, listeners, if you know things around you, drop us a note. Let us know what, what's going on out there because I've got tons of stuff I keep trying to donate or give away, and 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 there are only so many trips I can make in the car. <laughs> <laughs> so so let me let me toss some that I have dealt with in the past. Sure, absolutely. Um, we think of schools, uh, and we think okay, uh, George Washington Elementary, right around the corner, or whatever it is. You know, it's always yeah. named after a president or some famous person, and uh, uh, but. Uh, one of the things to look for is the private schools. Those private schools typically are in more dire need of the tech. Uh, it's it's something that some of them some of them are, are very tech savvy, but a number of them aren't, and and that's that's really sad. Um, uh, you know, maybe this belongs as a community activity all over the country. Sure. Yes. Yes. And I, I, uh, uh, I, w- I would definitely suggest that we start looking for places uh, outside of Goodwill. Goodwill. Uh, what Goodwill is doing is, if they see value in it, um, they put a price tag on a low price tag, and they try to make it available. Yeah. Well, if it, well, actually, one of the things that I've, I've stumbled across recently. Goodwill is actually reselling the high-end stuff on places like eBay, 
and and maximizing their money that way. That's uh, nice. And that, that because we know that the funds they get go to good purpose. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so we, we've got to find places like that. Um, th and there's so many things, you know, headphones. Yeah. Uh, earbuds, even ones that have only been used once or twice. Docs. Yeah. You know, yes. Not all system yes. units. There, yeah. there, there are lots of notebooks out there. Webcams. Uh, mm -hmm. Just tons and tons of things that could be useful to somebody, I'm sure. Yeah. And there are people who would love to have it but don't know how to ask where to get it or any of that. We need a little bit of matchmaking out there. Not that we should have a computer program to do that, but it would be nice <laughs> to have a little matchmaking out there. You know, and, and I am thinking of uh, – so uh, so the, uh, the church that I go to, we do have uh, an assistance that we do for people who are relocating. But um, – but I don't think we've got any kind of computer outfit, kind of anything that's going on with that. And I know that there are people that are underprivileged yeah. that that could utilize this. So, yeah, I've got to think about that. I've got to ask them about that. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned older stuff that's still viable. Stuff that's not nearly as old is even more viable. And notebooks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and how many times did you get the uh, the tablet for free by adding one more line on your mobile plan, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, that all of that tech can can really go to uh, really go to good usage in various places, and we need to all think about that. And that's Marty Winston. You're listening to Computer Talk Radio. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. This coming Saturday, the Trenton Computer Festival, the 47th annual Original Personal Computer Festival, Saturday, March the 18th, 2023. It will be featuring an EV car show with ride and share between the hours of 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., of course, weather permitting. And the theme of the festival this year is electric vehicles and related technologies. 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., TCF 2023 live festival event at the College of New Jersey with online 11 tracks of virtual talks via Zoom, free streaming through tcf-nj.org. The talks start at 10.15 a.m. There will be vendors there at the College of New Jersey from 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. For more detailed information, tcf-nj.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a meeting Thursday, March the 23rd. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. The TechEd Connect, formerly the Westchester PC Users Group, had originally scheduled a meeting for Thursday, April the 6th, 2023, and the meeting for April has been canceled. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey, Friday, has a meeting April the 7th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi, website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club 
has a meeting on Thursday, April the 13th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group has a meeting on Friday, April the 14th, 2023. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club has a meeting on Tuesday, April the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, you can call 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.